Welcome to Asshat Analysts, the debate game show where the points definitely matter and we take things way too seriously. My name is Josh Johnson, and I'm joined here with my roommates, Nathaniel Jackson. Yo, yo, yo. And Kyle Jenis. Howdy. Stay tuned to find out who truly is the king of pulling random facts and arguments right out of their ass. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Asshat Analysts. This week, we are joined by special guest, Mr. Tim Craig. Say hello to the people, Tim Craig. Howdy ho. All righty. So... This this session is our parlay episode. So we have a topic. We're all going to openly debate it, and we're going to award points at the end, or maybe not, based on if someone changed our mind on the topic or if someone just made a small point, anything like that. So, Nathaniel, <laughs> what is our topic today? I don't know why I called you Nathaniel. I appreciate it because that's my name. Um <laughs> So today's topic is what is one thing that is illegal that should be made legal? So uh, who would like to start? I vote you. Okay, I guess I'm starting. So uh, I chose open containers in public. Uh, open containers referring to alcoholic beverages. Um, so I picked this topic because I don't see harm in drinking in public. I do see harm, however, in public intoxication, which are two separate things. Um so currently, it is actually legal uh, to have open containers in nine states, Georgia, Louisiana, Missouri, Montana, Nevada, Pennsylvania. Was that nine? Sure. That's six. <laughs> oh, well, in six states. Uh, <laughs> um, I, and real quick, I'll also define public places. Um, any types of beaches, parks, drive-in theaters, on the sidewalk in any metropolitan area, uh, anywhere not privately owned. Um, what about public schools? Public schools, both universities, and I would say, like, can a teacher drink in the middle of their third grade class? No, because that's not that's, public. Yeah, it's private. A public school? Public school still private property. Okay. Owned by the state. I also feel like that's just very unprofessional. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and, it definitely is. But <laughs> and and that would also, I I feel like, be up to the employer. You know, because in that case it is no longer like it's not your property okay yeah i don't disagree with you i just wanted okay. to ask continue okay. with your pitch so <laughs> um basically uh it is legal in some places and in those places uh while there are definitely incidences of public intoxication um public intoxication is still illegal uh in cities like nashville um there's a very blurred line because it is very much illegal in nashville However, you have things uh, like pedal trains and uh, those stupid driving, I don't even, what do they call them? Like the scooters? No, the- Pedal taverns. Pedal taverns, oh, that's okay. what they're called, yeah. yep. Those I, things hate, are, I hate those. Yeah, everyone, hate in the Nash- yeah everyone in Nashville hates them, but well, that most people- time in a place. <laughs> yeah, but people are drinking out in public while they're riding those, so- while it is illegal here, for some reason that is allowed. Um, I, I think the reason for that is that they're technically considering it just a moving establishment in itself. So once you're actually in the confines of the cart, I think that's they, it's a loophole. But I think yeah. that's why they're yeah. But if that can be allowed, I don't necessarily understand how someone who's on their lunch break, who walked across the street and went to a bar with a couple friends, who then drinks one or two drinks, and then walks back but didn't finish their beer, why do they have to sit there and either chug it or leave it 
Why can't they just carry it with them as they walk back to work? I just don't see a big problem with it, personally. I Now, obviously, public intoxication, that's a different level of things. I think it should be left, left up to law enforcement, as it is in those six places that I named previously. Um, public intoxication is still illegal in those places uh, and is the kind of deterring uh, or not deterring, determining like factors are left up to law enforcement and whether or not they think that person is becoming a danger or is uh, breaking any other laws uh, and then they can choose to take the appropriate actions. So, so is there a I guess, like, a recommended legal limit that you would want to say on that? Because I know, like, it is, you know, and I think giving discretion in certain nuances and situations might be a good thing, but no, there should also be kind of some baseline. No. I genuinely think, like, I genuinely think it should be left up to law enforcement. If someone were to say, hey, I think that person's drunk, and they call law enforcement, or that person is seen by someone in law enforcement, and that officer takes it upon themselves to take action great if they look at that person and go you know they're probably a little tipsy maybe had a little too much to drink but they're not bothering anyone great i do not think there should be a specific legal amount that like uh you know say the drinking limit 0.0 whatever it is 0.02 or whatever Uh, it's 0.08 0.08 cool so i i don't 0.08 blood alcohol level yeah so what you're saying is uh, somebody could buy a six pack and then just walk down the street. Yep. Drinking it all, right? Yep. Now, my other question is, are you just limiting this to beer or is this all uh, liquor? Because I wonder if the uh, licenses for the restaurants would still be on the hook for some of Ooh. that um, to, uh, to, for the, some of that as well, as far as amounts and those kind of things. Hmm. You know, I didn't think about that. I think, you know, if, if it were just me making the decision, I probably would limit it to beer. But I think realistically it would be up to the states um, when they're decriminalizing it. So it would kind of be uh, – because I don't think uh, in the places I named, I don't think – they don't all have the same laws. You know, they have decriminalized public drinking, but they're not all the same. Like, they don't have the same stipulations. Um, and I think that is, their stipulations are largely built upon, um, you know, probably population, density, all those things, um, and just the culture of the city. So I think some cities and states probably would allow all liquor. I think most would probably limit it to beer, realistically. Okay, so with beer, because there's you know, higher gravity beers and things like that yeah. that actually have more alcohol in them than some wines some liquors. and, and yeah, some, some liqueurs as well. So is there a specific like percentage of alcohol that you would, uh, cause I know, uh, even in Georgia, I think there's gas stations for, as an example of this are yeah. only allowed to sell up to, I think it's 8%. Um, or mm-hmm. Georgia, it might be higher. Tennessee is only 8%. Um, uh, cause if you buy a four loco and different parts of of the the borderline then you can get one that's you know eight percent or you can get one that's like 14 yeah um i think it would be a good idea to 
And if you did make that limit like 8 or 10%, okay, I don't have a problem with that. I don't think all states would. If you were to decriminalize it, I don't think all the states would have that stipulation in in the the passing of the law. But I think it would be a, a good idea to, and I would recommend that to any states that did decriminalize it. <laughs> What about open containers in cars? Uh, well, drinking and driving is still illegal, so no. But like backseat or passenger yeah, seat. Yeah, I think backseat. I think backseat. I understand. Uh, I probably would prefer passenger seat not be legal. It is currently backseat is actually legal in Tennessee, but um, it's not in Georgia. But it's not in Georgia. Dang it! So, so not even sitting in a uh, unstarted uh, car behind the driver's wheel with a um, finishing off your beer from lunch before you start the car. <laughs> uh, you're, that's okay. I would say no. Cause you're now behind the, the driver's seat of a car. And so I, then you go to the passenger side, finish your beer, and then you walk around to the driver's side. Eh, I mean, if drinking and driving is still illegal. So at that point, I think it is legal to have finished it. But if you choose to get behind, there, I don't think that's that much different from going to a party and drinking it before you get in the car and then making the decision to drive. It is still illegal to drive after you've drank. So, therefore, I think, yes, technically he could sit in the passenger seat and finish that and it not be illegal. But it would be illegal as soon as he decided to drive. Okay. Because right. yeah, the way things are currently, that even if your if your car is off and your keys are even sitting on the hood of the car, there's still intent to drive. Yeah, um, and so that is is currently illegal. Yeah, um, as I think it should be. Well, because then the other thing becomes um, okay. So is drinking and driving would that be legalized as long as you remained under that point zero four percent? So like you could, you know, you could have some some driving whiskey. Um, as long as during the time of your uh, operating the vehicle, you remain under that limit. I don't think it should be. I don't think that should be decriminalized. I think if you have are currently operating a vehicle, um, I personally like the idea of if you're in the front seat of a vehicle, if you're in the back seat, I think that is a little different, and I'm okay with someone drinking a beer in the back seat of a vehicle as long as they're not operating it. Hmm. Makes sense to me. So would this, because this is something that you're, are you recommending that the federal government step in and make this decision, or are you recommending that all states, all states. individually do it? Okay. All states individually. Because okay. currently it is something that's left up to the states. Um, Correct. So how would that affect, like, dry counties in in the south, and um, or even the, you know, in, well, in Tennessee, you can't buy beer before noon on a sunday yeah um actually i think you can now it, well it depends on what county you're in okay uh, currently in our county it is illegal too um okay. but uh in to the county next to us to the north and to the east it is legal okay that might have been what i was thinking of it was yeah. just recently legalized in hamilton so, county yeah it is uh i Personally, I just think that it's ridiculous to, 
to have that in the first place. I think Dry Counties is stupid, and I just don't don't agree with it. So I I think <laughs> by having the state make the decision to decriminalize it, I think you would essentially that state would also be saying, okay, any counties that are dry counties, that's not a thing anymore. Well, so you can have well, you can have beer in a dry county. You yeah. just can't purchase beer, yeah, or alcohol in a dry county. So so, so even decriminal, I guess. The two are separate because you could yeah. go a county over, buy a beer, and yeah. then and then open carry it and, in yeah. in your county. Theoretically, yes. Which well, just like you wouldn't want the federal government stepping on the state's rights to make that law, you wouldn't want the state government to step on the local true. governments to make That's that true. law. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, you have a good point. I definitely don't want, I mean, as it is, you know, state governments have the right to govern and, and county governments and all that. So I don't want to, I want to avoid having too much conflict there. So I think it would have to be something that is kind of accepted, uh, government by government okay so you would be essentially this argument is a petition to um all counties or parishes across the country yes rather than to the federal government or to the states yeah i mean uh, yes i would like it to be decriminalized at the state level um and counties at that point i think would also most of them would some of them might not i mean technically in uh there is a county oh what state was it in I looked at this earlier. There's a county in a state that it is currently illegal Montana. to open carry. No. Oh. Um, but there is a specific county in that state that has laws saying that it is completely legal. So, Well, and I think it's also because you said that you wanted to leave it up to law enforcement and how they wanted to actually enforce this. Um, if it was decriminalized at the state level, then the counties could still put their own stipulations on how they enforce that well they could criminalize it and be harsher if they wanted to which is what it currently is kind of um of where you know some counties are harsher on it than others um but then i guess you could appeal like if you felt like you were wrongly arrested or you know in your county you could appeal it to the state court where you would be under a different set of yeah i don't know the judicial (laughs) system is is complicated, but that's the reason that it's set up that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, so my, my other question is because we're talking about open containers here on a lot of college campuses, um, specifically for college campuses. Um, I think this might just be legal jargon. Um, but your own body counts as an open container. So like for, uh, um, the school that I went to, um, it was illegal to have open containers on, on campus. Um, on campus. So that meant even if you went to a house party and then walked back to your dorm, if you were over the legal yep. limit or had any alcohol in your blood system, then you would be considered an open container and it would be under open carry laws. So it, are you changing the kind of legal jargon of that? Because w- 
because that all I it does say is yes, blur the line between um, uh, public intoxication and yeah, and open carry. I, yeah, I I that's a very interesting way for that school to have handled that because I would just say at that point you're not an open container. You're just it's whether or not you're publicly intoxicated. So I yeah I I would change that that like legally I would open if you have an open container that's fine now I you know a public school even a public campus is still private property so right or am I wrong because I don't believe so um I think it might be different for a university yeah I yeah I'm not sure about that um but I think public universities are uh protected property but not private property okay so they can regulate the forms of um, the right to assemble and those kind of things, but it does. It's not. It's not just like the open square idea or of a public space. Gotcha. Hmm. But that's just me. okay. What so it's like it's like a half measure between a public park and somebody's front yard. Right. Okay. Okay. So in that case, the school would then regulate what their rules are. And if their rules are, you know, if they agree that with the state that open container is fine, as long as you're not publicly intoxicated, great. That's that school's choice. If they decide uh, no open container on our campus is not allowed, great. Okay. But that's that school's decision. I think at that point it would be less of a, it's illegal and more of a we you can't attend school here if you're going to break this rule type thing like i don't think you would be able to be criminally prosecuted for that i think they would just say hey that's not allowed here if you're going to do that fine but you can no longer attend school here type thing okay well so the other interesting thing about that and this is kind of anecdotal evidence but my specific school had its own police department like that their entire jurisdiction was just campus yeah. Um, so, but the, the few times that I have known people that did have issues like that, um, where they were technically an open container, um, and had run-ins with the campus police, um, it was not necessarily something that was enforced. Um, and it was just more a kind of safety of like, okay, we'll yeah. make sure everybody is, Taking is okay. They're not being taken yeah. advantage of or anything. Yeah. yeah. So. Which I like that. I think that's great. I just, Which is realistically, I think, the way that a lot of policing does end up happening. Yeah. Um, but that it, that is different everywhere you go. Yeah. And a whole other conversation. Yep. True. All right. Well, uh, unless you guys have any more immediate questions, we should probably move on to a, one of y'all's choices. All right. Well, Kyle's itching to go. All right, Kyle. Right. What okay. you got? <laughs> um. Well, as I said for Patreon, I picked kind of a... I guess we'll, we'll stick with spicy. It's a little spicy one. I picked human euthanasia. The biggest reason I went with this, well, two big reasons. One, um, obviously, animal euthanasia is widely accepted as an option to end a pet's life or an animal's life. Like the biggest thing or biggest examples I th- was I thought of was Imagine like a horse breaks its leg and the leg like cannot heal. Like the horse cannot walk. And at that point, it its quality of life just like instantly drastically drops. So unless there is some amazing treatment that wouldn't be overly burdensome or anything like that, like you're like, well, we have to put it down. You know what I mean? 
and this is all this also goes with like animals that have like aggressive forms of cancer or heaven forbid like your dog catches rabies like that's basically fatal at that point you're just like well we got to do the thing you know so um the other thing i found which was interesting human euthanasia is illegal in all states but um there's something referred to as assisted suicide which is legal in 10 states i guess if well nine states in washington dc the nine states are california colorado Oregon, Vermont, New Mexico, Maine, New Jersey, Hawaii, and, and Washington State. Now, what the difference is, is assisted, what they call physician-assisted suicide. The physician or doctor gives the patient the means to end their own life, obviously with consent, and the patient then gives himself the dose. Euthanasia is where the physician actually administers the drug themselves to, like, the physician gives the drug to the patient versus, I think, I'm sorry if I mess that up. Yeah, all. Does that make versus, sense? Yeah. Versus self-administering yeah. the, yep. the yes. so-called treatment. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the big argument here is obviously it's the same thing. It's like if your quality of life is just drastically dropping and you're like, man, like I really do not want to live like this. Like if you're just like a, a you know, if you're especially for comatose patients or anything like that, that's one of the big things. It's like, is the treatment trying to keep this patient alive really worth it in the end? You know, it's and that's a slightly different scenario because the patient obviously is not cognizant of what's going on, but obviously the family would be able to give consent based on that. And there are actually two different main forms of euthanasia. The big one that people often are referring to when they say euthanasia is voluntary active. Um, basically, that just means it's the use of lethal medication with the patient's consent. Um, basically, it's just uh, lethal injection into the arm, and then the patient's heart rate just stops and everything like that. The other one that's more, not second, like we'll say secondary, um, is non-voluntary is what they describe it as and basically that's withdrawal of whatever treatment um, especially if it's ineffective or burdensome and this is the one that they use for comatose patients or anything like that where it's just it's not working so it's like cut it off you know that's it end all be all what is i guess commonly referred to as pulling the plug Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's like being removed from life support. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the that's the big examples. Like if you're on life support, whether it's you're in a coma or anything like that, it's just it's not working. Just you know. Okay. Okay. So that I'm sorry, I zoned out for a minute. Is that does qualify as euthanasia or that doesn't? Yes, it's a specific type. Okay. It's a specific type. So, so taking someone off of life support if they're in a coma is illegal. Yes. Now, obviously, well, the big reason, the person, obviously, the person who that directly affects is not, is not present of the decision. Now, obviously, there's all sorts of, like, power of attorney. Like, there's probably a lot of legalities that go into it because, obviously, then the family or immediate relation or whoever then has the power to make that decision for that person, even though the person isn't aware of the decision being made, which... Obviously, that I feel like would be set up prior to, or would be discussed if something were to happen or whatever. I mean, yeah. Well, so typically, I believe that decision goes to next of kin. So it's like if it's a mm -hmm. child, um, then it's the parents. 
uh, that make that decision. If it's somebody who's married, then it's their spouse. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, or, you know, if they're under a conservatorship or something like that, then it's um, whoever has power of attorney over them. Right. Um, and, and there are, so especially for, I think you said it was voluntary and involuntary were the, the uh, two distinct types. Whereas, uh, not, I guess non-voluntary is non-voluntary. Voluntary. There is, okay. there is involuntary, which that is, that is very illegal because that's more borderline close to like murder. Pretty much. Murder. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's, that's why they use the two yeah, different voluntary, uh, yeah, involuntary euthanasia happens uh, a lot. Um, <laughs> it's usually more violent. <laughs> I mean, um, Sometimes <laughs> accidental, but it happens. Yeah. Uh, no, okay. So, yeah. <laughs> Specifically in California, I do know that um, uh, voluntary euthanasia, like if the person is awake and making the decision that, like, I have this terminal illness and I really just, you know, I don't want my family to have to deal with the medical bills of sustaining me for much longer. Um, there's a lot of kind of mental evaluations and things like that that have yeah. to go into it. There's a whole series of counseling to say, like, okay, art, like, are you sure this is what you want? Because realistically, there's no going back. Yeah, pretty much. So there is actually there was a case. Um, I think it was in it did take place in California. It's Barber versus Superior Court, which took place in 1983. Which essentially what happened was there was a patient who, again, was comatose, and these doc these two physicians asked this family, "It's like, hey, you know, is this something you want to do? We will withdraw his treatment if that's what you want." Like, understand there's, like you said, there's no going back, but he will not be suffering. Do you want us to do this? They agreed, and they took him off life support, and he he died. And they were sued over it and everything, and it's like, no, well, we asked. Like, they gave us consent to do this. We did nothing wrong. <laughs> so that's that's the whole big thing is, like, it it's it's just something to me that, I, it, it, again, it is very, it's not a happy thing to, like, have have happened, but if someone's just suffering and there's, it's not, like, whatever is trying to, like, whatever they're trying to help make it lessen is not working. It's just, it's, you almost have to do what's right and just try and end their suffering as quickly and painlessly as possible. You know what I mean? Okay, so what kind of regulations do you think there are already that need to be kind of uh, heightened into that, or mm. um, or like strengthened in order to make this case and and make it something that would be viable um, to have across the country, as opposed to kind of w- what there is currently, and I mean even the understanding of you know having a medical license uh, and yeah. you know the the whole do not uh, do no harm. Right. I feel like maybe it's more of a case by I feel like it's a case by case scenario right now at this point. I didn't I didn't dig a lot into what sort of what might be in place already. Um I feel like right now it's more of just like a case by case scenario because it's it's not something that happens a I don't know how often it happens or how frequently this issue comes up in everyday people's lives everything like that so okay i almost wonder if it should be something where a new profession is created um profession um where someone who maybe has uh 
training in psychology and in psychological matters mm-hmm. and in trauma and stuff like that um, has to be the one to test the patient uh and then they have to be the one to administer it since a doctor does take an oath, you know, saying that they will cause no harm. So if you create a new profession where it's someone, you know, someone else who has not taken that oath, who is medically trained, but is not a doctor, someone who maybe is uh, studied psychology and, and, you know, trauma, that would be someone who's legally allowed to do it. Or, but I, it's just an idea. I, I don't know. Well, so I do I do like the idea of having like some kind of a specialty in that. So yes. it would be kind of like a cross between, um, you know, a, a psychoanalyst or a counselor yeah. and an anesthesiologist. Yeah. Um, and then you could, I would say, probably add an additional oath on top of that in order to specialize in this yeah. um, rather than, or or if you're going into that field specifically, then, you know, a lot of the schooling and requirements there are still basically the same but there is a separate board that that handles. Um, so rather than taking the Hippocratic Oath, which I believe is what it's called, um, you take the this, this new Oath. one that we're... The what? The Hippocratic Oath. Yeah, exactly. The Hippocratic Oath. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was thinking, uh, Nathaniel, when you were talking about that, it would be something that maybe um, you could add into on hospice. Which then I thought, well, then that's kind of weaponizing hospice. But um, w- so that idea is is interesting. And then there's another thing you you keep talking about quality of life uh, as far as the doctors go. And I think of what is the quality of life going to be for the family of the person who stays in uh, a medically induced coma and then incurs all the bills. So really, if you look at it on the patients. Uh, standpoint that's one thing but if you take one step uh, back and you look at a family unit you know then that's where you would probably take that do no harm you know you're Mm -hmm. minimizing harm at that point Mm -hmm. true that's the thing too is like uh, a lot of I, i don't know how expensive a lot of that stuff is but i feel like eventually it would just be not only emotionally but financially drained like you said too it's just that's a lot of money to try and keep somebody alive. Well, how much is your life worth? <laughs> no, that that legitimately is like the entire question. I mean, that yeah. the you're, entire you're right. healthcare system right, is built is. on. You're you're right. It's getting uh, less valuable every day. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the, it's getting less that valuable the older I get. The return on investment shrinks. So <laughs> that's that's what we got to look forward to. Oh boy, you should read Ikigai. Um, um, but I was wondering if I was going to be gifted that book eventually by one of you Jacksons. So potentially I I might expect that from my father. Yeah. Um, keep an eye on your mailbox. Okay. (laughs) Hmm. This is interesting. I'm reading someone's dissertation kind of while we're talking about the debate. Um, it's literally entitled the good death. Um, and it talks about how we, culturally we made the shift, how it used to euthanasia used to be considered a gift from the gods. And now it has turned into something that is like debated, heavily debated on whether or not it's right, whether it's not. I just, I'm curious as to when that shift happened and are we maybe amidst a shift back? 
Um, I think it happened probably. My assumption would be um, when we started shifting into more secular kind of views with medicine and science, and then as medical science improved and we were able to increase, you know, because it, it used to be if you got sick, you know, if you got um, like pneumonia, that was fatal. Yeah. And in some cases now it still is. Um, but with medical science, specifically in America and the Western world, you know, pneumonia is something you can cure in like a week. Yeah. So it, you know, um, I think the, the fact that we're able to handle more illnesses um, and it's not as much of a mercy and a release and that you know that you're going to some afterlife, yeah. um, I think is where society has kind of changed with that. Yeah, I think of uh, like Native American cultures and a lot of uh, other non-typical um, of what we're used to American culture, but it, it sees that this life is just one of many or this is not the final place. And so we're just passing through instead of uh, this is it and then it's over. Yeah. And so I think that when that, when the shift of this is it and then it's over becomes uh the louder voice then these are the kinds of things that uh we wrestle with hmm. Hmm. interesting yeah i mean our, our whole concept of death has changed um and i True. mean even as we've grown into larger societies and are not you know strictly like uh okay well the men go to war and the women keep the house like as we've moved away from that kind of society as well you know, because it used to be, I talked a lot about kind of Norse culture and some things like that on the podcast. But, um, you know, it was like you'd, you'd want to die in battle and have a valiant death and spend your afterlife in Valhalla. Yeah. So, you know, if you died with, with a sword in your hand, that was a good death. So, it, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Another question I have uh, is related to this. Is, so this is something that, again, just kind of like Nathaniel's where um, it's up to the states. So the federal government hasn't really, hasn't really made a statement on this, but it's just leaving it up to the states. Is that, is that where we're at with this? More, more than likely, yes. Um, as I said, uh, what is known as physician-assisted suicide is already legal in certain states like i said it's nine and washington dc so i feel like it might take a a long i don't know about a long time but it will take a lot of time and like i said it's a i feel like it's probably a very case-by-case basis in this in in the respective states to get to the point where it would finally i guess be nationally recognized as like okay this is something we'd be willing to allow again with regulations perhaps a new profession to help properly monitor and oversee it and everything but i think for right now it's it's just a state thing i i think the federal government probably like i mean that's i feel like that's a matter that could be left to the states as it is right now as it as we've kind of been seeing over the last like 20 years when some of the more recent states to join have joined well, so the other interesting argument that you could make on this um, is that the death penalty is currently legal. So there's people that have, yeah. you know, have been criminals and or have at least been convicted of a crime, um, 
who are being put to death involuntarily, whereas there's people that, you know, would like to would, die. Would, would like to die. Yeah, who would rather? That's actually that are legally not able to. There's actually there's a is it a book or something? There's a piece of literature actually which discusses that same thing: the right to die. It's like if you know, if if you don't like something, if like if you don't just don't like your life for whatever reason, you should have the right to peacefully end it under certain criteria under right via whatever regulations but you know that that is a that is a debated topic the right to die if uh so if euthanasia became legal and we did that like create a profession for that would that person then be the person to administer legally be the new person that is supposed to administer the death penalty to criminals on convict you know um, I think it would because it's the same kind of medical field, um, but I mean that's a whole other argument of if the death penalty itself is ethical. Yeah. yeah. So well, yeah, it, and yeah, it is. But I'm just thinking like because if that is a profession we create and those are now the people that are most qualified to administer the death, people, some people probably wouldn't want to go into that field for that reason. That that might be something that is asked of them. I don't know. Well, I feel like you would also go into that specialty, I mean, with the understanding that you are going to be ending people's lives. Yeah, but I think there's a difference between ending someone's life for, you know, quality of life reasons and ending someone's life because they're on death row and it being against their will. Well, they also, just because they're in that profession doesn't necessarily mean that they would have to deal with the uh, death row patients. Well, it would depend on legislation and how that... that profession or that profession is created because if if it becomes something kind of like serving on jury duty where if you are asked to legally you are required to you know if that becomes something that of this profession if if you are legally required to do this if asked i i'm just throwing theoreticals out here like i'm i i agree that there there would have to be a lot of legislation or probably cross legislation because of how it sort how, of well, how over, similar it is. Yeah, yeah, how similar it is to the death penalty. I think you would ideally, from just an understanding of it, 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 because it is very volatile medication, and there's also been getting into the death penalty kind of details of it. There's been a lot of uh, discussion about what that actual experience is life uh, is like, as far as uh, a way to die, and whether it's humane in it itself. Um, so. You know, I think it would be good to have a medical professional in that position um, that knows about that kind of medication and knows how to administer it in a humane way. Um, but I do think that you still have... Because this would still be considered an elected operation, right? Whether it's elected by the state or it's elected by the individual yeah. or the family. Yes. So I believe you can still, if it's just an elected operation, and this might be different in different states and things like that, and I'm not super well-versed in the medical field, but I believe you are allowed to refuse medical attention for elected surgeries or elected operations. Hmm. So, I mean, it's even by the fact that a lot of um, people, uh, doctors now, I mean, the uh, ivermectin. The ivermectin thing that's going on right now is, and I realize there's some lawsuits about it as well. Um, it, some 
doctors in a lot of other countries administer it as kind of a, a first round of COVID-19 treatment. But there's some patients that have been asking for that and doctors refusing to administer that. So I think it would go along kind of whatever that verdict is, is that if you are as a doctor, even if you're in this position and they need somebody in your position to do that, you know, to kill somebody on death row, yeah. then you can still say, no, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. And yeah. then they would find somebody else like that. So. I mean, ideally, I, I agree that that's how it should go. Yeah, just because you know how to swing a sword doesn't mean you have to be yeah. an executioner. Yeah. I agree. I'm just putting hypotheticals out. Yeah, okay. Just, um, I think if I, I may. Yeah. I don't want us to go down another rabbit hole here, but let me just throw this out. Uh, so let's say this all passes and it becomes legal. Now we know what happens when we mainstream things. You know what I'm saying? It becomes accepted. It becomes a part. I think maybe possibly a slippery slope with this would be all we've been talking about usually right now is um, physical uh, physical disease, physical, um, you know, you got a, a terminal diagnosis, right? So if we start to open it up to say, hey, uh, if you want it in your life, right, this is, you got to meet certain criteria. I could see to where... Um, it would possibly get to, or there'd have to be a, uh, a caveat as it comes to mental health. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I'm not talking about immediately when it's passed, but you know, you got to think two generations from now, if this becomes the norm and somebody has been tormented by depression for uh, a while. All right. Or schizophrenia or uh, some of those things. And they say, I don't want to live like this. Because, I mean, that's, you know, that mental health aspect can be just as uh, tough as a physical aspect. So where, at what point does the government, um, are they allowed to step in to regulate and to plan for this contingency? You know what I'm saying? And so that may be one of the reasons why it's so slow going right now. Mm -hmm. It's a really good point. Yeah. So I would say that the whole point of it being a terminal illness and the reason that that's even like this is kind of on the table for that um, is because you have pursued everything medically that you could do um, to try to improve this person's quality of life and, and allow them to live longer. Um, and so it has gotten to a point where they have psychological evaluations or, um, you know, full on if they're in a coma medical evaluations like uh you know counseling with the the families that are making these decisions and mm -hmm. and making sure that that is something that needs to happen so i do think that with the case of somebody who's dealing with a mental illness it is have they pursued every route of counseling therapy um uh you know medications whatever it is that can help them get to that point where they are no longer dealing with that and so it is is because this is a last resort it it may solve a problem, but it doesn't at all. Um, so I think that's where kind of that, I cannot speak necessarily medically on where that line would be drawn, but I do think it would be, have you pursued every avenue and this is the only thing left for this to even be on the table? Mm -hmm. yeah. I think in a lot of cases, you know, uh, mental health, 
those those things come from sometimes chemical imbalances as well as just life situations you put yourself in. So in a lot of those situations, even while, you know, uh, doing those things like getting going through counseling, uh, taking medication, all that stuff, you're still you're still always going to be battling it. That helps you manage it. It doesn't get rid of it. So mm-hmm. that's where I think it gets a lot more complicated because it, at any situation, someone who might be managing it better because they're taking medication, who might be might have a good support system but is still desperately struggling and wants to, that that's where there's it, it's almost impossible to draw a line. So mm-hmm. I, that's why that is a very dangerous slippery slope. Yeah, it's not because mental health isn't something you can just cure. It's something you you learn to manage. So, yeah. And I wonder what the uh, um, the youngest uh, assisted suicide has been. You know, most of the time when we're thinking about these people, we're thinking of middle aged or above. I'm assuming. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's where my brain was. Yeah. So people like me is what you're saying, <laughs> and. Uh, Oh. <laughs> so um yeah so it's it, yeah it's just interesting that we so if you but if, again when you start the mainstream and put it out there and you ease the restrictions that are on it now um that opens up uh a lot of things that we can't necessarily foresee yeah that makes sense hmm do we want to oh, move on interesting. to... So in the Netherlands, <laughs> yeah. in the Netherlands, there was a 29-year-old who was um, euthanized. Cool. So, uh, I mean, wow. Yeah. Was not terminally ill, uh, but it was... Uh, she was allowed to end her life by the state on account of her psychiatric illness. Hmm. Interesting. Do we want to move on to Josh's? Yeah, yeah Josh, what you got for <laughs> yeah. us? Okay. Josh, I need to pick me up, buddy. I mean, yeah. Um, <laughs> Please. Yeah. I mean, hey, these so, are all very interesting topics that we could do an entire episode on. I mean, this is, this is true. Yeah. So, you, so you're going to order a pick me up from another country right now. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yep. That's, uh, that's what I think exactly. should be able to happen. Um, yeah. So, so currently in the U.S., um, individuals are allowed. So companies cannot um, import medications uh, and pharmaceuticals and, and medical equipment. Um, from outside of the U.S. It has to be produced inside the U.S. Um, private citizens can order um, up to three months uh, of doses um, of some medic- some medications um, from outside the country, but no more than, than three, and you still have to get um, like permits to be able to do that. Um, the reason that like this is still currently the way that it is is because of the FDA um, has, you know, kind of stricter regulations and uh, on quality of things that come in. Um, and so if they're coming from outside sources, it's harder to regulate that. Um, mm-hmm. But realistically, like that's the, the answer they give. But realistically, all it's doing is allowing um, institutions inside the U.S. to jack up prices ridiculously high. Um and I mean, even getting something from Canada that has a um, free healthcare, the the costs of you know even something as simple as insulin um, are significantly lower 
Um, and so I just think that it, it is an outdated system and, uh, you know, we need to figure out some way to be able to take that power away from, from big pharma and, and allow people to have access to medication that they need. And if that means being able to get it outside of the country to increase that, um, competition, then I think that's one of the easiest ways to do it. So, uh, I have a couple problems with this. I personally, if I were you, I would change instead of importing medication. Um, I would say we should be legally allowed to import FDA approved medication because currently you can't import nearly any medication from outside the U.S. But if it was FDA approved, I think there's no reason you shouldn't be allowed to insulin being a good example. Um, so I like importing it being legally allowed to import uh, any and all medication um, or even if we did put some limitations on it medication that's not FDA approved there could be a lot of problems with that uh, it's easier and harder to track certain chemicals like in the US you can't buy you know there's limitations on the amount of certain drugs you can buy purely because they are used to make heroin or meth or things like that. And so I being able to then import it from other countries where it's not easily tracked, and uh, that could cause a lot of problems. So I understand, like, I think that should be changed to being able to import drugs that are already FDA-approved. So there are, yeah, specific drugs that are FDA-approved, but it's the FDA approves um, like the chemical compound that goes into that medication and the, the quality in the creation of it. Yeah. So it's, it's also looking at the plants and making sure those are up to code. And yes. um, So, which I don't know that a federal organization would be able to do that for exterior sources. I think, I think yes, like if there are drugs that are on the market that are FDA approved, um, then I still think private citizens should be able to, well, then there's pseudoephedrine, like you were talking about, um, which is an over-the-counter medication that has now become not necessarily over-the-counter because of meth production. Yeah. Um, so what so, I say, yeah, you'd probably have just a bunch of Walter White wannabes just yeah, trying so, to get stuff in. So from, my, well, yeah. He, he didn't use pseudoephedrine. And while yeah. things, you know, right. you're right, FDA the FDA is approving it based off of where it's made, how it's made, as well as the chemical compound and the chemical makeup. I don't think that would be nearly as hard to get approved as you think. Um, having someone from the FDA go to certain other countries that are then allowed, it, the the problem then becomes, would the U.S. government do it? And that's probably a no. But I think finding companies who are producing these drugs and especially in countries close to us like Canada and getting the chemicals, all it would take is a walkthrough of the plant and getting those approvals. I don't think I, I, it wouldn't be easy, but I don't think it would be nearly as hard as you think. Yes. I think that that begins to step on sovereign nation. Uh, Which was areas. my point of it. Yeah. Cause you can't have yeah. a federal organization holding it's kind of like other, yeah 
kind of like California setting emission standards for their state and not allowing car sale uh, manufacturers to sell, which effectively makes car manufacturers do that for everybody, which effectively makes car, car, uh, California set up those emission standards. Hmm. Does that make sense? So we're letting one, uh, one state uh, because of their standards uh, effectively do it for everybody. Well, so, think, and I'm not saying I that, think the uh, incentive would lie in the company that is producing the drug in other countries. The incentive, we're not regulating how they do it. We're just saying, hey, if you want to sell to us, you can come to us and attempt to get permission. I don't think it's a, hey, you know, uh, you have to do this now. It's a, if you want to sell and have the ability to import your drugs into the U.S., you have to meet these standards. Like, well, uh, this is a very, very scaled uh, example. But in the music industry, there are different requirements for mastering, different luff meterings that you have to hit to be able to send things to Spotify, to iTunes, to YouTube, to all these different streaming platforms, Pandora. They, those metering requirements are set by those streaming services. And they say, hey, if you want to do de- your business with us, this is how you have to do it. It's not, they're not then putting that out on everyone else and saying this is the new standard they're saying no if you want to do business with us this is our standard you just have to decide whether or not you want to meet that standard yeah or i guess the better way to do that would be kind of with other goods when they're imported in quality is checked um you know of them to make sure like the the oil that's imported we don't necessarily go to you know saudi arabia and look at their oil rigs um, but we do check the oil when it comes in and make sure that it's um, kind of of a certain quality uh, or make sure that, you know, fruits that come in, you know, don't have diseases on them that would affect our crops. Um, so I think that might be the better way to do it is kind of check those. Um, yeah, I mean, at, at that point, yeah, it's up basically to check it, check it at the gate rather than go to the warehouse in Canada where it's being manufactured, the factory in Canada. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, yes, it, it's up to the FDA and how they want to handle that and if, how they want to do approvals. The thing is you have to then convince the FDA, hey, by the way, we are now legalizing this, um, but only if you approve it. Therefore, you need to start approving things. Well, and uh, realistically, I don't think this is something that's ever going to happen uh, just no. because of the way that our government works. Um, but I just think that... It, it would change a lot about the healthcare system um, if prices of medicine were more effective. And considering the way that America loves its, you know, capitalist view of, you know, free market, even though it's not actually a free market, free market competition to be able to keep prices down, um, that's not something that exists in our medical sphere. Yeah. Well, you know the argument there, right? Hmm. How much does it cost to research and develop medicine? A lot. When you're talking, yeah, yeah. And when you're talking about multiple years of tests and trials and multiple years of um, academic research, and you're talking about that, then if you uh, 
you know, if, if there's not going to be a return on investment, all right, the companies have no reason to innovate. Well, and I think there should be some return on investment, but that's also, um, you know, I mean, how much is the return? Well, so, and that's what I'm saying is not, not necessarily regulating, not having the government say, this is what the price should be, but by allowing other people into the market, you can break up the monopolies of what are there, um, and allow for other companies to sell and be an option and have the market bring down the price. Well, but no other company can produce the, the, that medicine until it runs out of patent. I think the current patent is what nine, I think nine years for a medicine before it can become generic. Yeah, but but there are plenty of medicines that are already out there that are generic or are already past that, and so you know you would realistically you could. It it's kind of a half measure, and it's not, in my opinion, ideal. But it would still be the you know pharmaceutical companies would still be able to get that and basically charge whatever they needed, to be able to make back the cost of it before it became generic, but then after that nine years. You know, and if we're talking about something like insulin, which is not, I, I don't believe there's a patent on insulin. Um, that, you know, that is something that, like, as a specific example, mm-hmm. um, would be able to. And so. So, yeah, you it, the argument against funding is, well, you have nine years of your patent to make that money back after that, when it goes public, guess what? Well, then it's, you can still make the money back, but you're also working with the market. Yeah. But also you got to think it's not making your money back. It's making enough money to continue to further research into something else. So you not only have to make the money back, but you have to make enough to where now we're going to move in this direction. Granted, that's just a shade of a difference, but um, yeah. It's no, not it like is, we, but that yeah, that is yeah. a significant difference when you're talking Financially, about Financially, yeah. But yeah, that's it's might be a slight difference, but it's also, you know, millions of dollars. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and and I think there are I'm not entirely sure how to exactly do this. Um, you know, whether it would be making sure that the product's coming in, you know, checking it at the gate, making sure that the products are coming in. Um, if it's, you know, maybe it's hospitals that are only able to, um, or, you know, hospitals or pharmacies that are able to get that medication. So it's not the individual that, you know, you can't go out and kind of make your own deal. Um, but how is this, uh, Remind me again, how is this different from the individual can get three months of a medicine from a Canadian pharmacy? So the way that it would be different is, um, is that, so even though like I don't go to the pharmaceutical company to buy the medicine, I go to the pharmacy to buy the medicine Mm -hmm. that they got from the manufacturer. And so this just says that other manufacturers can exist as well to bring the prices down that the pharmacy has to pay, therefore bringing the prices down that I have to pay. So, okay. yeah, and it, it you would be able to get, depending on what the medication is, if you needed to get more at that time. Um, or I, So, in it, right now, it is, you have to get, um, like, uh, I believe it's state approval um, to be able to get that, you know, three-month supply from an outside source. So, it's already, like, a, a complicated system of how to do that. And then you are still 
at the risk of, okay, well, this isn't like the quality of it isn't necessarily like, I don't know what the quality of it is. Um, right. Which is the reason that a lot of, that's part of the reason that a lot of people just go within whatever systems that they currently have. This is interesting. I kind of want to read more about uh, just in general laws on how you get those permits to be able to import up to three months. Looking at the FDA's website, it says that a drug can be um, refused entry if it appears to be adulterated, misbranded, or unapproved. But those are the only three examples it gives. Okay. Well, now I have a new topic I'm going to be researching the next couple of days. I assume <laughs> I assume unadulterated means like tampered with or anything like that. Yeah, if the seal yeah. is broken. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Just a way for them to ensure what is on the label is what's in the bottle. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. Um which which makes sense. Yeah. Which might actually be closer to kind of what I'm talking about. Yeah. But it's interesting because the way this this is wording, and this is, comes directly from the FDA's website, the way that this seems to be worded is that it is legal unless it falls under one of those categories. And then it lists a couple more examples. But, but that could just be this one singular page out of the probably 15 to 20 pages it has on the website. So I say, there's, there's probably a lot to read <laughs> yeah, and actually so, digest. Yeah. Well, and then, yeah. And then different States probably have different. Cause I mean, like you, you can't bring fruit into California. Yeah. So, yeah. That, so what? we can move on because there's a lot here it's, uh, in order to protect the crops from parasites and things like that. It's weird. You just can't cross the border with fruit. Okay. It's, but it, that's what I mean. Like different States have different, is that unpasteurized fruit or any fruit? Uh, I believe it's unpasteurized. I'm not sure. Hmm, interesting. But we'll I'm, never know. All right, Tim. What uh, What is your answer I, to yeah, this I topic? I haven't driven to California in a while. All right. Uh, so uh, this is uh, you know slightly different than what you guys have. It's kind of a I think low stakes, but it's interesting anyway. It is illegal to buy and sell Cuban cigars in the U.S. Um, so I think that that should change. Hmm. <laughs> this started back in 1962 by the way 1962 so we're coming up on the 60th anniversary of uh when jfk started the embargo against cuba uh all cuban imports including tobacco so it's the longest running uh embargo in the history of i'm assuming the world but definitely the country uh the u.s that, that we've had against another country and I think it's about time to kind of relax it a little bit. I mean, what have the Cubans learned in this amount of time? <laughs> so, and the reason that it was made illegal, was that because they were a communist state? Yes, because they were a communist state. That was right around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, and the Bay of Pigs, and those, those kind of things. Okay. In 2014, I think what most people remember in 2014, that uh, Obama uh, announced uh, a relaxation of the trade embargo. So that opened up the educational travel to Cuba and those kind of things. And as part of that, travelers were allowed to bring up to $100 worth of Cuban cigars back for personal consumption. But it was still 
and has always been illegal to buy and sell Cuban cigars. Uh, in 2016, um, uh, the there's a partial lift on the trade embargo that starts to relax that a little bit. Um, it, it lifted the $100 limit of uh, Cuban cigars and basically said personal consumption or to give to friends, but buying and selling was still illegal. Uh, and then in 2020, Trump uh, took a stronger stance and just went back to um, prohibiting any Cuban imports, including tobacco. According to a 2018 UN report, the embargo has cost the Cuban people $130 billion in its, um, ever since it's been there. So I just think it should be uh, lifted. Uh, the U.S. is allowed to give humanitarian aid to Cuba. Uh, and so, you know, it's not like we're ignoring them. So what's the... Uh, why is it still there kind of thing? Yeah, why is it still there? We, we still have diplomatic relations with uh, and trade relations with China, which is a communist country. Uh, we have diplomatic relations with uh, Russia. And, um, you know, there's only four countries we don't have any diplomatic relations with in the world. So I don't understand why we're picking on poor little Cuba sitting 90 miles away. I wonder how many uh, Cuban cigars Donald Trump has smoked. At least one. <laughs> At least one. Not saying anything, just saying something small. Um, well, so, so, yeah, it's this is more of, of a political issue. and a, uh, I think a state or countrywide um, theory or stance issue more than what some of uh, our other discussions have been. Yeah. So it, uh, it it may be even more difficult to tie down or um, argue one way or the other. Okay. So, so in, is yours on the embargo overall, or is it specifically on the tobacco? Well, it, was, uh, it started specifically on on tobacco, but I mean, I can see uh, you know the other big one was rum, and then you know just the other goods, you know, uh, those kind of things. The thing is, obviously, I guess the argument is since the state owns everything as being a communist country, uh, when we start to do trading with them, we are supporting that that government. And mm -hmm. so since we don't want to do that, yeah. we're just not going to buy anything. Yeah, well, but I think that much like sending ping pong players to China in the 1970s, uh, I think if we started to open the door a little bit, you could see... Um, I think you might be able to see some benefits and that, so it'd be more of a symbolic kind of thing. Obviously you would have to regulate it. You could, uh, because, you know, there's a lot of, of uh, cigar manufacturers here in Florida and Tampa as well. And there's a huge Cuban uh, population that hates the uh, Cuban government in Florida. So it's a, it's a tricky issue, but I think that if you start to open the door little by little and, uh, you know, Everybody talks about a Cuban cigar being the finest in the world. So maybe this would be a symbolic type of gesture. You could regulate it one way or another, make sure that try to make sure that the money that is spent on them goes to uh, the manufacturers themselves and not necessarily to the pockets of the president. Um, you know, hmm. I just think it'd be a good gesture for someone in our hemisphere. Okay. Yeah, because I think realistically, the other argument there, why, like the comparing them to China, which is also a communist state, 
is that mm. I think China is a much bigger player in the world market. And so realistically, I don't know. I don't know exactly what list of products we get from China, but I feel like it's quite large. Um, and <laughs> so <lot>. I don't <laughs> listen. Yeah, it would, it would definitely hinder our ability to um, kind of exist in that world economy. I think each of us, if we reached out right now and touched an object that was closest to us, it has probably been to China. Yeah, these mics we're recording this on were made in China. Yep. <laughs> I don't think they were. It says made in China. Is it really? Are we? Hold on. Where? It doesn't on mine. It would be on the front of yours, Nathaniel. <laughs> it's not on mine. Mine's also nicer than you guys's. Okay, so. well, Nathaniel has a different mic than us. Yeah, Nate, the other three microphones that we have that we're using are made in China. So yeah. Nate has the good one. Yes, but it, so whereas, <laughs> whereas we can kind of get away, and I guess we have at this point gotten away with not trading with Cuba. Yes. Um, so, but if we're gonna make exceptions for China, it's kind of hypocritical of us not to make exceptions to other countries. Like I. I don't know. I, I I don't see a point. It sounds like and looks like, you know, Obama was starting to kind of loosen up some of these things as kind of a, you know, good conscious, like, hey, you know, let's let's work together here. As a gesture. Yeah. But uh, Yeah, and that was right around time, you know, Fidel died and then his brother was there. And I think his brother took a little bit of a softer stance as well and so there there was some sort of meeting but they have a new you know they have a new president now i think he might be a little more uh hard line which may have been why trump uh went back and yeah. also i think that was during the time where didn't remember uh they were saying about the embassy workers in cuba they were getting this mysterious illness and they thought it was some sort of electromagnetic i have not heard of that what so <laughs> Oh, you haven't? Okay, no. maybe maybe I was wearing aluminum foil on my forehead when I heard it, but <laughs> I don't think that... I No, I think it's a, a legit thing. It was some uh, sort of... I don't know. Some sort of thing that uh, they claim or they blame the Cuban government of intentionally doing something in the U.S. Embassy that would cause the... It was like they were feeling nauseous yeah, hearing, just, hearing sudden loud noises, pain in one or both ears, feeling pressure or vibrations in their head, uh, tetanitis, yeah. visual problems, vertigo, nausea, congestive difficulties, fatigue, and dizziness. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, causes not defini uh, definitively determined. According to the first thing that popped up on Google when I typed <sighs> in disease at the Cuban embassy. Yeah. Hmm. So I think they were, it wasn't, a, I don't think it was like a... Um, Germany weapon, whatever that's called, but it was uh, some sort of yeah, not a chemical uh, weapon, but the Cubonic yeah. plague. That's interesting. <laughs> it, was, it was referred to as the Havana syndrome. Yeah, yeah. So that might have been what caused it to go back to um, um, full on. But hmm. this is interesting. I, I well, so that was also in the kind of later half of. Uh, 2020 um where i think president trump was you know shutting down kind of a lot of things yeah yeah um, because of yeah because of the covid yeah but 
Mm-hmm. Anyways, yeah, I think there, I think there were probably a lot of things that we probably don't necessarily understand or have knowledge about. But <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, to be fair, this is this is just about like like cigars, like realistically, like <laughs> it's not though. It it's political. It it has nothing to do with the cigars themselves. Has everything I mean, to do with our fair. relationship with the country of Cuba and our standing in the world as far as the uh, arbiter of whatever democracy is, I would think. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, and so fair. it depends, it depends on um, your philosophy on that, your philosophy on um, who's your neighbor, those kind of things. So again, it's not, uh, it's, it sounds simple on the one hand. Um, and I'm sure there's a, a plenty, a, a nice black market for it on the other. Yeah. <laughs> that's operating right now however um you know i i I think because i think i looked it up uh you probably you guys probably have already by now but it's like uh it's fifty thousand dollar fines so it's mainly fines i think there was a case in 1997 where there was a big bust for uh cuban cigars and so overall i think it's not necessarily uh, one of the biggest concerns of the American government, but again, as a symbolic gesture, uh, yeah. I think it, 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 I don't know if that would do anything as far as diplomatic relations go, but it may be just a, as a symbolic gesture to move in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't see how it would hurt if you legalize cigars and, and are able to, you know, show them the profits they could get maybe eventually open up to other imports like rum and things like that mm-hmm. and see where our relationship uh, country to country is after that. It might help things a lot. It might make things worse and then we'd make it illegal again. Yeah. Take cigars is kind of a first date step. At, at least yeah. we'll have, we'll have learned something. We're yeah. not committing to a full on relationship, but we'll go on a date. Yeah. Funny enough, I think out of all four of these, this might be the hardest just because it does involve two separate governments that are definitely at odds. But if it if it works out, imagine the rewards, like imagine what potentially could be. Well, and so then the other question is, are we still actually directly at odds with, you know, Cuba and with with communism? Because I mean. None of us are politicians, so none of us really know what our relationship with them as a country is. You know, it's also one of those things where, like, you know, I, I don't really know outside of the pleasure of being able to enjoy a Cuban cigar what benefit it would have on the U.S. It would benefit Cuba a lot, but Cuba is a small country. Us, us sending stuff there, exporting stuff to Cuba won't benefit the American economy like importing Cuban cigars would. For the Cuban economy, and we already uh, again we already export you know, humanitarian aid. Yeah, true. So we're already uh, we're already doing stuff. Maybe we just uh, trade cigars for humanitarian aid. I like it. I like it. That's a <laughs> that's, good compromise that's, that's right smart. there. That's pretty smart. <laughs> that's big brain. So how many uh, bandages does it take to get a humidor? <laughs> how much? Ne- how much neosporin? <laughs> Wow. Oh, All right. <laughs> well, let's go around real quick. We'll uh, reward points. So, Tim, just so you know, rewarding points, uh, they don't have to have necessarily completely changed your mind. 
if they made a good point that made you think and go, you know, maybe uh, that's kind of interesting. I like that. You know, that could be really good. Then you're free to reward them a point. If no one made any points that you like and you just decide, hey, uh, I think my decision was the best and I never second guessed it, then you can abstain from rewarding any points. So we'll go ahead and start with one of the hosts, Josh or Kyle, who wants to go first? Tradition, baby. You got it. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Always on the spot. Um, hmm. There were, a, there were a lot of really good points made between all of us. Um, I know his might be pretty hard to make happen, but like I said, because of the potential of what could grow from it, I'm going to go with Tim's. All right. One I want to see it happen. Yes. I want to see it happen. I mean, you you just want a Cuban cigar. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, Tim, do you want to go? I can. Uh, although I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to... Everybody, again, everybody made uh, good points. Um, I think that I would uh, award... Uh, can I award half points? No, uh, it's it's got to be it's got to be one full point. Yeah. One full point. One full point. Okay. Um, I think the, uh, Josh uh, had some uh, interesting arguments. Um, I'm not totally convinced uh, of of everything, but I think of the three, um, he he made me think the most. Hmm. The other two, because it it comes down to states' decision or states' rights or county rights that there's it seems to be there's avenues for this to be happening already and so it's not that it's necessarily totally illegal you know fair what i'm enough. saying yeah fair enough i get it so all right um i am gonna give my point to uh to kyle um i think it's something that i i definitely understand and i think there would need to be a lot further kind of deep dive into it and, you know, looking at kind of the psychology of everything and, and really being able to define quality of life and set those parameters. Um, but I think especially with kind of where our medical system is at right now, um, I think it wouldn't necessarily be a, a bad thing to take a look at. Hmm. That leaves you, Nathaniel. I'm a little stuck. <laughs> I I've I'm going between Josh and Kyle. Both of them just made me uh, like I'm very interested and actually want to do research in both a lot more. So really it just comes down to who made the better argument. <laughs> um So I'm giving my point to Tim. Uh, oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, Dang. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, genuinely, uh, I am actually kind of interested. I, I think Tim's is probably the most unrealistic, like I said, just because it is two separate governments and, and actually two governments that have a very, very long history of not getting along. And uh, But I do think it is something that is uh, almost pointless from our perspective uh, and actually kind of hypocritical as a nation to uh, agree to do 
you know, business with China and not Cuba. And uh, I do think actually having a good connection with a neighboring, close neighboring country can only do us as a country good. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to give my point to Tim. Congratulations, Tim. You got two points. And I got none. Ooh. Hot diggy <laughs> dog. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, hey, Kyle, you want to go ahead and run down points so far for the month? Yes. So as of right now, at the end of this episode, Josh is still in the lead with now 11 points. I am tied with you. We have six points each. And actually, there's a three-way tie. For the guests now also have six points. <laughs> All right. Uh, and this is the... Is this the last week? This is the last okay. week. This is the last week. Interesting. Gosh, dang it. So this will determine uh, who gets Why the Why am I always tied with Kyle? <laughs> I was tied with Kyle last month going into the, like the last two episodes. I know. <laughs> well, all right. Well, you we... have two episodes left to take a lead and not lose. Yeah. Can all you right. do it? Uh, probably not. All right. Well, we will see you guys on Wednesday for our BS episode. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for today's episode. Be sure to join us on the next episode where we will continue to debate as good friends do. Follow us on Instagram and YouTube and stay up to date on all things Asshat and to participate in polls and activities throughout the week based on the themes of the upcoming episodes. We also started a Patreon for those of you who are interested in showing your support in a more direct way. On our Patreon, we have a ton of bonus content, including tier lists, loser dinners, and bonus podcast episodes. We want to continue making content that makes you think, smile, and especially laugh. And the best way that you guys can help us do that, leave a like or a comment, download, and share all these episodes with your friends and family members who you think would enjoy our tomfoolery, our shenanigans, and all those other crazy words that encapsulate our content.